All right. Well, as we transition now into our teaching time, we are in a sermon series right now called Things That Are Hard to Do. We're going to be doing this uh, for six weeks total. This is week three. Then we're going to be in Proverbs for a while, and then we're going to study the book of Daniel this fall. But things that are hard to do, uh, this is an opportunity for us as a church, you know, as we follow Jesus, to address particular things, whether it's in our church community or in our culture, to address particular topics that we as followers of Jesus find challenging. Anybody ever found it challenging to follow Jesus at times? Yeah. So we've looked at some various topics, and, and earlier this year, Right after, uh, right after Pastor Shane uh, had his heart attack, uh, I had reached out to a handful of other pastors in the area, and I said, hey, one way that you could help serve us right now in this season where we're, where we're, we're missing one of our leaders would be if you could come help provide uh, preaching so that I can have certain weeks to be able to focus my attention and, and energies on other things that we have going on. And so I reached out to a handful of pastors and, and Justin Anderson, our, our friend from Icon Church in Seattle, reached out and said, yeah, I'd love to jump in. And I said, well, here's some topics. And he goes, I'll do, I'll do the one on biblical sexuality. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. And so uh, I'm really grateful to have Justin. Justin, why don't you come join me up here, friends? Can we welcome Justin from Icon Church to come and preach? I'm thankful for you. Justin leads Icon Church. It's a brand new church plant in the Capitol Hill area. And uh, this is your second time here with us preaching. Thankful to have you. We've also sent, I think, Pete and Sean, who are both leading music here today, have gone and helped lead music uh, for you guys there. And so I'm just really grateful that there are more churches being planted to showcase the glory of God and the love of Christ Jesus in our, in our area. So thanks, brother. Really glad to have you here. Can I, can I just pray for you? And I'm just going to hand this off to you and let you, uh, let you lead us uh, in God's word. We're in, by the way, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to open your Bibles uh, while I pray. But would you join with me? God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the truth that is contained in it. And we thank you for the joy that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus and that we have been uh, restored into right relationship with our Heavenly Father through the work of Jesus on the cross. And God, we thank you that you have made us into a family, one body, uh, many different locations, many different uh, congregations gathering together. And God, I thank you for the congregation that is Icon Church. I thank you for Justin as a faithful leader and a faithful shepherd for this, this new congregation. And God, I ask and I pray that you would fill him with with your Holy Spirit right now, that the words that, that he shares, the words that he teaches uh, would come from you and would stir our hearts and stir our affections for Christ Jesus. And, and, and Lord God, as we look at this subject of, of thinking biblically about sexuality, God, I pray that you would uh, move in our hearts to see the beauty and the goodness of what it is that you have uh, taught us and instructed us and given to us. And more importantly than anything else, would you help our hearts to love Jesus more as a result of our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take it away, brother. Thanks, man. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. Um, uh, what Aaron said is true. Uh, did get that email. Glad to help out. I've been praying for Pastor Sean, Shane and um, uh, excited to be here with you. What he didn't tell you is, uh, you know, every time I tell somebody like, yeah, I, I volunteered to do the sexuality thing, people are like, wow, that's brave. Uh, and it is, unless you saw what else was on the list. <clears throat> I picked the easy one, guys. I mean, just wait to see what you have these next couple of weeks. It's crazy stuff I've never even heard of. So um, <clears throat> we're going to be 
was a teaser for you. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6, and uh, at, at Icon, we're teaching through 1 Corinthians. This is actually part of why I offered to do this, because I knew I'd be teaching this passage the week before coming up here. So it kind of works out good. Uh, get to get to do this a few more times. Um, and before we get into this, uh, it, I mean, there's probably nothing in the world, no idea or issue right now that is kind of more uh, inflamed with uh, passion, no pun intended, uh, and no, you know, nothing that's kind of uh, more viscerally argumented and these kinds of things than this issue of sexuality. And so um, I, I walk into a message like this um, with, with a fair bit of, you know, kind of fear and humility. Um, and, and choosing it as a topic is different than, you know, we're going through 1 Corinthians, so I can kind of go, hey, guys, it's 6. This is just the next thing. I didn't pick it. Uh, but this is, uh, we did pick this. So we can't hide behind, I can't hide behind that uh, this time. Um, and, and so I want to start uh, by just acknowledging the challenge that uh, is this issue. And the challenge I've found, I've been in ministry for about 18 years now, uh, the challenge is not, I think, primarily a, an intellectual challenge, a logical challenge, a really a head-oriented challenge at all. Um, so much of what makes this hard is that it speaks to things that are the deepest and most intimate things about us. And so that always makes something like this difficult because um, we're trying to do this thing where we take a 2,000-year-old text, we translate it into modern context, and then through one lens, which is me, I only can see the world one way. I, I don't have the ability to see it through your eyes or experience your life. I'm then trying to translate that out to a room full of you know 100 to 200 people or so um, who are coming from... from from massively different viewpoints and life experiences and all of this. And so I want to acknowledge the absolute impossibility of what we're about to attempt. So just to set the bar low is <laughs> mostly what I'm trying to accomplish with this long introduction. Um, so I want to say that. Um, what we're going to do in this passage is two things. One, uh, Paul's going to start by kind of laying out some gospel categories for us. Um, and then he's going to respond to two rebuttals um, that he got from the Corinthian church in a letter that he's responding to. What's remarkable about this is we all, you know, often we'll look at the Bible and go, well, it's 2,000 years old. It's from the Middle East. What possible relevance could that have to us? Why would we take a, kind of an authoritative stance or sit? under the authority of such an old and different uh, kind of scripture. Um, and yet the two challenges that the Corinthians set forth are the exact same challenges that we deal with today. And so I think that speaks to the sameness of our humanity across space and time. So that being said, what I want to start with is um, a, a, a kind of a, what, what I'll describe, even though I wrote it, uh, a, a biblical vision for sexuality, just because um, so many of us come from so many different places and have heard probably at least parts of what Christians think about sexuality, that I thought it might be helpful to just establish some common ground and, and kind of give a, not a definitive definition, though that's 
I don't know what kind of definition isn't definitive. That's the very word, but, uh, but we'll, we'll go with it anyway. Um, so this just an idea of what we mean when we talk about biblical sexuality, and then we'll kind of go from there. So here we go. The Bible envisions sexuality as the physical, emotional, and spiritual union of one man with one woman as the seal of an unbreakable covenant. It is, first and foremost, a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, the first union and first relationship. Secondarily, the union was given as a gift to humans to be enjoyed. Amen. To be the means by which we accomplish the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And to facilitate the intimate relationship that man and wife were created for. This is the purpose for which sex was created and its ideal incarnation. But the Bible is full of stories and examples of ways that sexual desire and practice have been disordered. The same way all desires and practices can be and have been disordered. Therefore, the redemptive scope of Christ's work extends not just to lying, cheating, and stealing, but to disordered sexuality as well. The Holy Spirit not only saves us, but transforms us into the people we were made to be, right? Really easy to remember, concise definition. <laughs> now, let me say two things before we go from there. No matter how you feel about what I just said, even if you think I couldn't be more dead wrong, you are welcome here. And I, I think I can say that on behalf of Aaron and the elders, that you are welcome here, that Sound City is a place to disagree and to wrestle together in love and respect. So no matter if you think that's dead right or dead wrong, that it says too much or not enough, you're welcome here. That's one. Two is, no matter how you feel about what I said, you are deeply loved by God. You are an image bearer of God. Our name at our church is Icon, not because we want to be famous, but because we are icons of the living God. We are image bearers of God, and that is our fundamental identity in the world. So that doesn't change no matter where you fall on this spectrum of belief about sexuality. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, I will say this about Christianity's sexual ethic. It is not a kind of random law sent down from on high. It's not as if it's kind of the beginning of human history, God looked down with a checklist and started going, well, they seem to like doing that, so we'll call that wrong. Um, and they're not big fans of that, so we'll make them do it a lot. And it's, there's, there's not kind of a randomness. In fact, I would argue and will argue that the coherence of the biblical vision for ethics outpaces all other systems. That there is a logic to Christian ethics that flows from God himself out into all of creation. That it is not, in fact, random. That not, we are not in a position where, as culture changes, we begin to change. We go, oh, they, you know, this, this group of people likes doing that, so now the Christians think that's wrong or right or whatever the case may be. That there is a deep, deep coherence to the scriptures and to the ethics that flow out of them, and, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. So, if you disagree with the scriptures about sexual ethics, I will pose this question to you now. And maybe you can be thinking about it as we go throughout our time together. If you disagree with the scripture's position on sexual ethics, I would ask you, why? How do you know good 
and evil. If you are convinced that homosexual practice or extramarital sex is good and right, how did you arrive at that position? Everybody has a line. Everybody has lines in their lives, lines between moral good and moral evil. And every single person in this room draws lines in one place or another. And so I would ask you, if not the scriptures, then from what do you arrive at your positions about where to draw those lines? I think that's an important question that each and every one of us need to ask ourselves And if you are here and you are a Christian and maybe you agree with my definition, I would encourage you, in fact, to make sure that just because you like the basic idea of what I'm saying, that it isn't rooted deeply in convictions about Scripture, about humanity, about the nature and character of God and what he created us to be, and not just simply an alignment with a political party or a cultural group that we would always dive back to the scriptures to root our hearts and minds in the character and mind of God. Okay? Let's get in the scriptures. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, What Paul gives us in these three verses, 9, 10, and 11, is some categories that Christians have through which we see the world, a a lens through which we might see the world. And it begins in verse 9. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, in order for Paul to say that something is unrighteous, that presupposes that there is such a thing as righteous, right? That there cannot be evil if there is no good. There cannot be crooked if there is no straight. There cannot be uh, uh, sin if there is not a clear vision of righteousness. And for for the Christian, that is and has always been the kingdom of God. This past, present, and future reality that God has established here on earth. And so we tell the gospel story, and we would call it the true story of the whole world, that the Christian story is not just kind of our story, but we believe it is the story, and that story is the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We believe and always have, Christians have a category for creation in that God made all things. God is ultimately responsible for all things. And what he made in the beginning was very good. That it was ideal. That there was in the mind of God a purpose and an ideal for his creation. We see that it lasted all of two chapters, but it was there. So God made everything in the world as a reflection of his character, as a reflection of his desire and will. And so we do have a category for the good and that it is a universal thing. That God set this world in motion, gave it its purpose and identity. Now, we also have a category for fall. Right, That there is good, there is an ideal, and so anything that is not that is is 
short of that. We call it a sin, right? We call that the fall. We call it brokenness. We call it all kinds of different things, but we have a category for things that are not right. Here's where it's, this is why this is important. For the Christian, not right or evil or sin or whatever synonym we might use is always understood in relationship to God's purpose, to God's intention in creation. So in the Old Testament, one of the primary ways that the Old Testament understands sin is not uh, as we might think of perversion or evil or insidious kind of that, but it's simply missing the mark. And it's so we, we might think of it this way, like that, that sin is anything that isn't God's, what the Hebrew is shalom, right? Like that perfection, that God's perfect ideal for the world, anything that isn't that, anything that misses that mark of shalom is sin. Anything that isn't God's purpose and intention in creation. So that's a category that we have. Now, Paul gets into details here about what are some examples of sin. And what's interesting to me about this list is he's not trying to really make an argument in some kind of meta sense, but each and everything in this list is connected to something somewhere else in First and Second Corinthians that the church in Corinth was talking about and dealing with. So this is a list not just of all the sins, it's a list of the sins that the church in Corinth was dealing with, that they were specifically committing, which is how we know he says in verse 11, such were some of you. Here's something important to keep in mind for us. Is if, if The question is, how do we think biblically about sexuality? Um, Martin Luther argued that every sin, all sin, everything we can imagine, this list and everyone else, is at its root a failure to follow the first commandment. Now, class, what's the first commandment? Yeah, good job, guys. <laughs> F. You shall have no other gods before me, is the first commandment, right? So in the sense, and this was Luther's kind of one of his primary arguments, that the root of all sin is our desire to be God. To, to be sovereign over ourselves. To say to our maker, I will make myself. Okay, and so what is that? Well, it's a fundamental rejection of the first movement of the gospel story, that instead of creation being by God and, and kind of dictating what it is we were made for and what the world was made for, it's kind of usurping God's role and saying, no, 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 that is my job. I will tell myself what I am. And this is fundamental to our understanding of sin. But it gets better. Verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. And here's, I'm just going to take a second on this because this is so important. Paul does this over and over and over and over and over. There is something deep within the soul of every human that is a result of the fall for sure. But there is something deep within us that wants to always and in every way create a difference between us and them. We, we want to do it all the time. Us good guys, and them bad guys. And we, we do that around sin. We do that around faith. We do that more, I think, more appropriately around sports. <clears throat> Us Seahawks fans, right? Them Patriots, you know, them 
evil, I, we'll get into the fall and patriots and all that later, but <clears throat> we do that in every single part of our lives. We want to create, well, there's an us and there's a them. And in Christ, that is no such thing. There is no such thing as us and them in Christ. We are all image bearers of God and any differences between us are simply the result of God's redemptive work. Not about us and not about them. It's about God and his work that we fundamentally have nothing ultimately different between all of us. And this is Paul's point. And such were some of you. So at the very moment you start to think, yeah, those revilers will never get into the kingdom of God. Yeah, those drunkards, those adulterers, and maybe some faces and names start to run through the Rolodex of your mind, of your, the, the them category in your mind. And just the moment we might start to do that, Paul goes, oh, and remember, such were some of you. So the bad news is that everything on this list is in us. The potential for each and every bit of it is in us which levels the playing field very quickly. And then one of my favorite words in all of the Bible, and almost every time, especially Paul uses this word, it is good news for us, but, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This ought to, for the Christian, humble us so completely. Because notice what Paul says very purposefully. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Okay, English majors, who is doing the action in those verbs? You, the washed, the sanctified, the justified? Come on, class. No. So you are culpable for the fact that such were some of you, but God washed you, sanctified you, justified you by the power of the Spirit of our God and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no place for arrogance in that passage. There's no place for us versus them. There is no place for anything but a humble confession of our need for Christ. There is nothing, no room in this passage for anything except to say, yes, God created an ideal and it was perfectly tuned for our thriving and yet we at every turn have rebelled and tried to fight God's sovereignty and to be our own maker and to be our own God and yet in the midst of it, even though every turn we did this and it produced nothing but death and pain and destruction in our lives, God watched washed us, sanctified us, and justified us. That's the foundation for all Christian ethics. God made the world. He did so in a particular way. That way was designed for our thriving. We have all rebelled and broken the system. But instead of death or worse, indifference, God rescued so that we would be returned to God's original intention, to be remade into the men and women we were created to be. This gives us categories. There is no such thing, or there is such a thing as good or ideal. 
There is a purpose for which we and everything else were created. There is sin that is a distortion of the ideal. There are disordered desires that result from sin that are a form of the real thing, but just untrue enough to be destructive. There is redemptive work that is not only about forgiveness, but also restoration. This gives us biblical categories to be able to look out at the world and go, okay, is this not, not just purely in some objective sense of like, is this right or wrong? Is this what God created me for? Is this what God had created us for? Is this an example of me being in submission to this good creator, God's desire for me? Is there, or is this an example of my desire to be Lord over myself and God over my own life? And if this, there's this desire in me that seems like it's broken, but it just seems so intrinsic to who I am, is this something that falls under the redemptive scope of Christ that he is and will be working in and through me to redeem me back to what he created me to be? These are the categories we have to look at every issue through, but especially sexuality because that's our topic today. Two challenges that the Corinthians had written Paul about. You'll see him, uh, two quotes here at the top in verses 12 and 13. Um, I'm going to take them in opposite order, if that's okay. Hopefully you'll see why by the end. So we're going to start with verse 13, the second quote that Paul is going to respond to. The Corinthians had written to him this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul responds, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, um, very specific kind of contextual issue here that was happening in Corinth that they're writing to him about. And this is kind of the application of a larger theological theme. So the application for them in Corinth was the idea of temple prostitutes. This was a very common practice that certain gods and kind of part of their broadly understood worship was to go uh, and guys would just go after work instead of going to the bar, they'd go to the temple and have sex with a prostitute as part of their worship to that religion. You can Imagine why those religions got popular. Talk about church growth strategies. So this is happening in Corinth all over the place and is apparently begun to kind of trickle into the church in Corinth in one way or another. And as a means of defending that practice and then broadly sexual immorality, um, by this point we've already dealt with the man who was sleeping with his father's wife, right? So there's rampant, very creative uh, sexual immorality going on in the church, their defense of it is this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, it's natural. Just go with it. Your body desires food and so you feed it. 
Same way our bodies desire sexual intimacy, so we feed it. Why would we argue with simple desire that seems like such a fundamental part of who we are, right? Who am I to stand in the way of someone's desires? This is basically the argument. And what's amazing about it is certainly like takes a little bit of translation, but the argument food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food is basically the same argument we hear today about desire. Well, if I want to love this person or if I want to be sexually intimate with this person, who are you to say that I shouldn't? Why would I not follow my desires? It's the same basic argument. But here's the thing. Um, we all put limits on our desires and even sexual desires, right? Like there's nobody in the world who doesn't have some limits. I'm not even going to give you categories. You can think of them on your own. But everybody has some limits on their kind of what they believe is morally okay and morally not okay when it comes to sexuality. Right, Even though our desires would lead us down certain paths. For instance, one example is this. Science would tell us that as primates, we have a desire, men in particular, have a desire, an innate biological need to spread our DNA out as much and as widely as possible. Science argues this is not my opinion. It's science. Okay, But we restrict that, don't we? We say no, even, uh, even, the, even non-Christians and people who are far from biblical vision of sexuality would say no, it is basically immoral or at least still culturally frowned upon to think that way about sexuality, that it should be at least in the bounds of consent, which is not a biological category. Right? Uh, it should be within the bounds of some basic relationship, some basic attraction, some marriage or some, like we all have these different limits, even though like what science tells us our bodies actually desire is not that. And so we limit it. Okay, so again, back to my original question to many of us, if our lines are not drawn by the scriptures, where then are they drawn? Or from what? Why do we draw the lines that we draw? Plus, we have categories for resisting desires, right? We have categories for disordered desires. We don't, nobody in the world would simply say, yeah, any desire you have, just follow it. Just do it. Just do anything your heart desires. We would never tell somebody to do that. We, um, there are many people, and, and I'm sure in this room we are affected by, I know I am affected by, people with addiction. This is what is essentially just a disordered desire. Desire run amok, a desire out of control. And everyone in our culture and society would say, no, we need to put limits around those things. So yes, we have fences and lines that we have drawn, but more importantly, desire is always intention with purpose. There is always a tension between desire on the one hand and purpose on the other. For instance, I desire to have six-pack abs. This is unrealized. I won't, you know, just take my word for it. I have an unrealized desire for six-pack abs, which is in constant tension with my desire for chips. 
love chips, salsa, guacamole, whatever, whatever you got, honestly, take it. Love me some chips. Fish and chips, totally different thing. <laughs> these, these desires are in tension with purpose, right? Or with, 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 our, with our kind of larger purpose. So every time I do this with a chip to my mouth, I'm choosing to follow this desire and not this desire every single time. So there is a larger sense where the question is, what is the purpose? What is the ultimate purpose of our bodies? What is the, the Greek word would be telos? What is the end for which we were made for our bodies and for specifically our sexuality? Right, so um, we see uh, this argument here in uh, 1 Corinthians about, well, it's just about desire and your body wants food, your body wants sex, just kind of go with it. Our world, our culture makes a similar kind of uh, funny, does a funny thing with sex that I've noticed. On the one hand, we hear this argument that sex is no big deal, right? It's just, it's just two people. It's just hanging. It's kind of like uh, it's hanging out, Netflix and chill. And it's just like no big deal. And we just kind of do it and it's fun and don't worry about it. But at the same time, um, it's a pretty big deal. And uh, you are, you should really orient your whole life around getting more of it uh, and, and finding it. And we're going to actually sell every product in the world from sex, through sex, we're going to use it to sell. But honestly, it's not that big a deal. It's just should be fun and kind of a side thing and no big deal. And don't, don't worry about commitment. Don't worry about covenant. It's not a big deal, but it's kind of everything. And so uh, it's going to be everywhere and you cannot escape it. And it's the most important thing, but I mean, lay off it. Come on. It's not just chill. It's just relax. It's no big deal, but it's everything, but it's nothing. At the same time and always, it's the most ultimate casual thing in the world. It can't be both. And, and when, when someone is trying to sell you something that is obviously not true, you have to ask why. And what's happened in our culture over the last 50 years now, since kind of the sexual liberation movement in the 1960s and uh, the uh, feminist movement in the 1960s that has done much good, much really important good in our culture, has also sold a vision of femininity and feminine sexuality to women, which essentially says, hey, be free, do what you want, don't be hemmed in by this old style thinking, this traditional thinking thinking about what makes a woman and modesty and all of these kinds of things. In fact, be free sexuality, have sex with as many partners as you want to. And what's happened in that is now there's sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle pressure to say, if you are modest, that's actually now frowned upon. In fact, the most sexually liberated women are the ones having the most sex. And I'll just ask you a question. In a culture where sex is cheap and requires no commitment and women are encouraged to be more and more sexual and less and less modest, who wins? Who wins that game? In the long run, nobody. In the short run, men. Men win that game. I mean, men for all of human history have been trying to get women to be less chaste. 
this is a, this is a game and we're getting played. I have three daughters and I fear for them. Not because I want to return to some puritanical vision of sexuality where it's evil and bad and should only be done on holidays. It's, <laughs> it's because the opposite commodifies women, turns them into a thing to be used. It, how we ever got to a place where we thought sexual liberation was good for women Ultimately, in the way it's conceived of now, I I don't understand. Men everywhere are silently laughing. Stephen Um, uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, writes this about sexuality. He says, the broader culture is extremely libertarian and hedonistic in its approach to human sexuality. Religious people have often been criticized of being extremely prudish and ascetic in their approach to human sexuality. Against these two extremes, Paul gives us an incredibly balanced and humanizing view of sexuality. Hedonism essentially says, have sex with anyone you want. The body is a morally neutral zone. As long as the adults are consenting, there are no moral implications. This view ultimately dehumanizes the participants by removing the soul from the picture of sexuality, thereby animalizing human beings. Asceticism, on the other hand, says don't have sex with anyone. The body is a morally evil zone. Even within the context of marriage, sexuality is viewed as a weakness and potentially a sin. This view ultimately ultimately dehumanizes individuals by rejecting an essential part of their humanity, the body. Asceticism over-spiritualizes human beings. The biblical view of sex ultimately humanizes individuals by affirming both the body and the soul. Biblical sexuality is the only view of sexuality that can properly account for the body and the soul. So culture gets sexuality wrong in two ways. It both overinflates the power to satisfy and to give us meaning and undersells the metaphysical reality that no two people can engage in sex and not leave changed, fundamentally changed. The scriptures go a step further and describe it as oneness in verse 16. Do you not know that he was joined to a prostitute? And of course, prostitutes aren't unique in this. This is a biblical understanding that when we are joined sexually, that we become one body. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. The biblical vision of sexuality both acknowledges the limitations of sex's ability to satisfy and yet recognizes its real power to unite and bring intimacy. Sex is a great gift and a powerful one. It is to be enjoyed and celebrated, but not played with. It is far too formidable for that. Which is why Solomon in Proverbs 6 refers to it as fire being put into our laps, that nobody can do that without real consequences. So that's number one, the Argument from desire is really an argument about purpose. Argument number two, verse 12. They say, all things are lawful for me. He says, but not all things are helpful. Again, they say, all things are lawful for me. But he argues, but I will not be enslaved by anything. This is the argument for freedom. Again, an argument we hear each and every day in our culture. 
And indeed, for the Christian, there is freedom in Christ, but there is not freedom from Christ. In fact, in Romans 1, we get a, a, a vision for what freedom from God is, and it's described as a consequence that God gave them over to their lusts. Let them kind of play out the string on their desires, that this was a consequence from God to kind of restrain himself and not intervene on our behalf. When we use our bodies for other purposes than what they were made for, we assume self-sovereignty, we play God, and we lose. Paul's answer to this question of things being lawful and freedom, it says in verse verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And hear this, church. You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. This is the fundamental assumption of Christianity. When it comes to our identity, when it comes to who we are, that sentence sums up our vision. That I am not primarily mine, which flies completely in the face of the culture around us, which constantly asserts its own self-sovereignty, its own independence, that we as Christians would say, no, fundamentally, I am not mine. See, if I am my own, then self-discovery and self-expression are my highest ideals. And anyone who stands in the way of these things is standing in the way of your very identity, your very self. This is what we see in our culture all over the place. That this idea of the right to self-expression and the right to self-identify is rooted in a sense that I am mine. That's the fundamental assumption. I am mine, therefore, I ought to be able to discover who I am and express who I am. In fact, those are my highest ideals. And if you stop me in any way, you are harming me because you are cutting against my very identity. But Christians believe that identity is not founded on behavior or decisions, but on our relationship to our creator. Our identity is not tied to income, vocation, sexuality, power, victimhood, nothing except for what and whom God has made us to be. We are not fundamentally our own. There is probably no sharper point to this discussion than that. If you begin from a place that says, I am not mine, then you can build a vision of sexuality that is coherent and and, uh, uh, follows the logic of the scriptures and ultimately leads to life and flourishing. If you begin from a place that says, I am mine, that's a It's just a completely different path. One that will forever put you at odds with the sovereignty of God. So Paul asks them back two questions. One, they say all things are helpful, 
or all things are lawful for me, but he says, but not all things are helpful. In other words, does it move me towards my purpose? Does it move me towards my telos? Does it move me closer to the identity that God has given me? That being an image bearer of him. And they ask again, or say again, all things are lawful for me. And he says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And, and I would say just one quick thing on this because it could, it's a can of worms. But the fear that underlies these issues is significant. Because, see, what would happen if we were demonstrated to be wrong? If we start from a position that I am mine, and so I have built this identity, and I've taken on these ideas, and that identity is, has produced these behaviors, if at the very fundamental part of that we've show, been shown to be wrong, then in that moment our entire identity structure is at risk of falling apart. When we build an identity based on behavior and what we want to do defines who we are and who we are defines then ultimately what we think of God and we move this way, then the idea that that foundation is dead wrong causes the rest of it to crumble and that just can't be. And so what we see a lot now is the unwillingness to even have the conversation. We can't have the conversation about behavior out there because it is built on this house of cards that starts with, I am mine. And if the question is, how do we think biblically about sexuality? We have to begin with that foundation that I am not my own. The gospel tells us who we are fundamentally, that we are icons made for God's perfect world. So Paul says, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So, the logic follows, glorify God in your body. Here's the reality. You were made. You were given everything that you have. You were designed, given some talent and not others, some attributes and not others, some parents and not others, some nationality, some height, some look, some interest, some personality, some work ethic, some brain. You chose none of it. Because I'm assuming you wouldn't have chose what you did. I don't know, y'all, just from the look of it. Each of those things was given to you by God to make up you. You were given desires, Hopes, dreams, yearnings, addictions, frustrations, limitations. You were given an internal moral compass and a desire to know and be known by God. St. Augustine said it perfectly. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. You are not your own. You can take real credit for almost nothing about you. God made you, gave you an identity and a purpose. He made you for himself and everything about you is calibrated to that end. And even in your rebellion and in mine, Christ purchased us, redeemed what was always his own. He paid a price that we can never fathom so that we can be who he made us to be. But we have worked all our lives to undo that. He walked into the pain of death. 
so that we might walk into the joy of life. All we have to do is the seemingly impossible. We have to give up. We have to stop trying to be God, to run our own lives, to decide who we are, to find value through some behavior or mask, and simply let him name us his child and to walk in the life he made us for. For all of us. This means naming the ways in which we have rebelled against God's authority and tried to be our own. It means struggling through the endless labyrinth of sin's temptations. It means that each and every time our desire to be known, loved, accepted, affirmed, glorified, or freed leads us to put on another identity or accept someone else's idea of purpose, that we would resist and turn back to our Father who calls us his child, who knows us, who loves us, who accepts us, and has freed us to be exactly who we were meant to be. Let's pray. Jesus, it is a great gift to be made by you. The most prized works of art in the world are prized because of their maker. And Lord, we have the greatest, most creative, most perfect maker in all the world. So Lord, let us be who we were made to be. Give us not the strength to fight, but the humility to let you fight on our behalf. May we just give up the striving to be somebody and just be the somebody you made us to be. Submitting to your will, knowing that at the end of it all is life, flourishing, thriving, joy, peace, all that you've promised to us. Lord, help us to think biblically about every single thing in our lives. Give us the courage to act biblically in every area of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As we transition to communion, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As you partake in the Lord's Supper, um, take some time to reflect and pray on on the uber thought of today that you are not your own, you are bought with a price. After that, Sing and stand and celebrate with us. Thank you.